0: Well, after a lot of prayer and meditation this week, I finally settled on this text because chapter 11, verse 2 follows chapter 11, verse 1. There is no other reason I would ever select this text. There are roughly 8,000 verses in the New Testament, and scholars are pretty much unanimous that these 15 verses are the most difficult in the New Testament to interpret, and therefore the most difficult to preach from. Head coverings. And from the looks of it, you are all in big trouble today. Other than Blaze, is is Blaze here? Stand up, Blaze. Okay, Blaze has got a pass today. Good job, Blaze. All right, thanks for your help, Blaze. You can remove your hat now. No, really, remove your hat, thank you. (laughs) Okay, in light of, in light of the difficulty of this text, here is the uh, hermeneutical, hermeneutics is just biblical interpretation. Here is the hermeneutical principle that will be guiding me. Alistair Begg, he says this, keep the plain things the main things. We'll have to do that today. There there is a lot in this text that is absolutely, it is not plain. It it would have been plain to the Christians in Corinth in the first century, but we're not there. We're not them. And it is difficult to discern what Paul is talking about. So we'll take the plain things and we'll make sure that we keep those the main things. This is the start. Chapter 11, verse 2. It is the start of a long discourse on public worship that will span from chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through chapter 14. So for four chapters, Paul is going to be talking about public worship. And in the middle of our verse-by-verse study of these chapters, I plan to take a couple breaks. In the middle of these next four chapters, at least twice at this point. Uh, Once we'll break for three to four weeks to address baptism and communion. We'll bring the Lord's Supper up in the text following this one. And then we will probably early 2020, we will look to take another brief break and look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Specifically in public worship, because Paul is going to to bring that up to the church in Corinth. But regarding our text today, here we are with this text. Let me say a couple more things before I pray and we move forward. God's word, God's truth must be established in our hearts and then expressed in our behavior. God's word must be established in our hearts. It needs to get past, but through the understanding of our mind and it needs to settle with conviction in our hearts. God's word needs to be established in our hearts and then expressed in our behavior. What we believe about God shapes the way We live. Our actions speak louder than our words. In other words, how we live as Christians. And we'll see today right down to the way we dress. Reveals our convictions. For example. Most of you are. Here. Right now, you're not at a restaurant you are not on a hike you are not sitting on your couch and you are here right now because you believe that God is worthy of and even requires our regular corporate worship of him that truth for many of you that has been settled it has been established in your heart and it is expressed. It is expressed in getting you or you and your family here every Sunday. Let me give you a more personal example. I believe that the, the preaching of God's word, that it puts a man in a position where the highest possible honor must be given to God. I can't think of an occasion other than standing behind a a pulpit or not, but preaching the word of God. I can't think of another example that requires more careful honor to be given to God. So that truth is established in my heart and it gets out through a shirt and tie. I'm not a shirt and tie person. I don't wear a shirt and tie throughout the week, but I wear a shirt and tie when I preach because there's been a truth that's established in my heart, and it is that there is nothing more important that I could be doing right now. And so I'm thinking of any and every way to show honor to the one I'm speaking of. And for me, personal conviction, culturally, I should be in a shirt and I should be in a tie. So, what did the Corinthians believe that needed to be expressed in their behavior? They believed, as should we, they believed that gender is designed and assigned by God for His glory and our good. You know this, that. That's a controversial statement to make today, it may be controversial to some of you, it may be upsetting to some of you. But as Christians who believe that this Bible is word from God. We believe that it is clear and the Corinthians certainly did that gender. Maleness, femaleness is designed by God, that it is something that is assigned by God. It is not up for grabs. It is assigned and designed by God for his glory and for our good. They they believed that though God has created men and women equal, there are profound differences between men and women there are planned differences that must be accepted by God's people that must not only be accepted but embraced by God's people and then must be expressed and this is often how theology works or doctrine works it gets into your mind and then it gets into your heart and then it gets out through your fingertips For many of you, you can think of examples where there is something in God's word that initially you did not embrace, but it just became clear to you there was no more escaping it that God's word was true and plain on a particular issue. And maybe you didn't even like it, you would say, at first. You were resistant. But finally you surrendered, you gave in, your mind was convinced, this is what the Word of God teaches. And then over time, you grew to not only accept that truth, but to embrace that truth. For me, this was the sovereignty of God. For me, this was the sovereignty of God in salvation. For me, this was the clear differences between men and women. God's word is clear on these issues. But at first, probably because of where I've come from, I resisted it. God's word broke me down. It became clear that it was true. I accepted it in my mind. But it took time for me to embrace, to love these truths. And then finally, from acceptance to embracing to expression, we want to display these truths. We want to... Live them out. We want our lives to conform with what it is that we say we believe to be true. So in Corinth, they believed this. They believed these differences, these distinctions. And they were. For them, they were culturally expressed through married women wearing head coverings in a public worship service. And some wives, for reasons that we do not know, were removing these head coverings and thereby expressing rebellion against rather than submission to the word of God. And I think, and I'll be saying that more today than usual, I think, because again, this is a very difficult text. I think it was unintentional on their part. Not that these were women who were intentionally trying to dishonor their husbands or dishonor God. And yet unintentionally, they were expressing rebellion against the word of God rather than submission to the word of God. And so Paul is going to point that out. So it is perhaps clearer than ever before why we should pray before Moving forward this morning, so will you please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, send your Holy Spirit now to help us understand and apply these words. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you will find today's text on page 901. if I have something difficult to say to you, if we're friends or as your pastor, or if I have something difficult to say to you, something hard to hear, I might begin with a sincere compliment. Hoping that that will prepare your heart for hard words. That's not mere flattery. That's not a, disingenuous thing to do. And that is exactly what Paul is doing in verse two. Verse two, he writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Paul means that overall, as he considers the Corinthians overall, they had done a really good job. He's encouraging them here. They've done a really good job remembering and applying truth that he had passed along, which gives him confidence now that they will receive what he's about to say to them. What he is about to say to them through the next four chapters, it concerns problems in their public gatherings. He's addressing problems in their Public gatherings. And there were quite a few of them. They had quite a few of those problems. But we cut them slack. We cut them slack. Because we as Christians. Have been publicly gathering. For over 1,900 years. And the church in Corinth. Had been publicly gathering for worship. For about five years. We're way further down this road. Than they were. So it comes as no surprise, right? No surprise that there were some issues. And we've got the first one in the text that's before us today, which was this first century controversy over head coverings. Because this is not an easy text to interpret, I've organized the subject under four headings that I pray will be helpful for you. The four headings are the principle, the problem, the proofs and the precept. The principle, the problem, the proofs, and the precept. So let's begin with the principle, which Paul gives straight away in verse 3. So look with me at verse 3. Here's the principle. But, remember that but follows his compliment. You've ever heard that? Someone says something nice to you and you're like... Ugh. coming there it is but but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God that is the principle the Corinthians need to have brought before them it is imperative that they and that we understand Paul writes that the head of every man is Christ the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, Paul talks about these three relationships elsewhere, so let's make sure that we understand each of them. First, the head of every man is Christ. That word man means mankind. And the word head means authority. It can also mean source But the context makes clear it means authority here. So this first statement means that Christ, the son of God. Christ is in authority over every man and every woman. Later in this letter, in chapter 15, verse 27, Paul will say regarding Christ, God has put all things, which includes each of us, men and women, boys and girls, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Look at the next relationship Paul draws attention to. He writes, the head of a wife is her husband. We find that same declaration in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, where Paul writes, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for... The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, here's a very important distinction. A very important distinction is that a husband is not the head of his wife in the same exact way that Christ is the head of mankind. A Christ creates men and women. And has authority that is perfect. And absolute. But man's authority over his wife is similar to Christ's authority over man. In that a husband is to use his authority for good. It is for good that a man is to be head of his wife. It is good That Christ is the head of mankind. This headship of a husband, though, it gets misunderstood. It gets misused by husbands who may even claim to be Christians, who will use texts like this to get what they want, not to honor God. It's partly misunderstood. Because unfortunately, there is a track record of this among Christians. There have been terrible husbands. Just terrible husbands. Who have wickedly used this principle to manipulate or even worse their wives. Headship is not a call to dictatorship, husbands. It is not a call to dictatorship. It is not a call to chauvinism or getting your own way. And it is not wives. It is also not an authority that requires a wife to blindly submit without recourse if a husband is abusive. Headship is a call for husbands to love their wives in the way that Christ loves the church. And to take responsibility and lead their wives in a God-glorifying direction is headship. That a man does have, Paul says, over his wife. In fact, if you look down at verses 11 through 12. In verses 11 through 12, Paul. I believe anticipates this truth being misused, and so he writes something to emphasize the equality of husbands and wives, he writes, nevertheless, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. You see, a husband and a wife need one another, he's saying. A husband and wife complement one another. They need one another. A husband and wife are inter dependent one is not better than the other and so one may not lord authority over the other okay so the head of mankind is christ and the head of a wife is her husband and then paul's third statement the head of christ is god god the father is head Over God the Son. Now, remember, we believe that there is one God who exists in three persons. Don't we believe this, Christians? The Bible makes clear there is not three gods, there is not one person. There is one God who exists in three persons. You know who those three persons are. God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now let's magnify even more. And in the person of God the Son, two natures are united. So three persons, God the fun, God the fun. That's good. Put them together, and what do you have? God the fun. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And in the person of God the Son, we have two natures united. He is called the God-man. He has a divine nature and a human nature. And so God the Son, according to his divine nature, because God... The Son of God is God. God the Son according to his divine nature is not in submission to God the Father because they are equal in authority. However, God the Son according to his human nature came to earth and voluntarily submitted himself to God the Father. In order to live. And to die. To save his people. David Strain writes. The father sends the son. The son obeys the father. The son is not. This is important. The son is not subordinate to the father. Essentially or eternally. And yet for us. And for our salvation, he took flesh. He submitted his human will to the divine will. Hebrews 5.8 Learning obedience by the things that he suffered. So that is the principle. verse 3, those three parts, that is the principle that Paul wants locked in our minds here. What is it? The head of Christ is God, the head of man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband. And that truth should be established in our hearts and then expressed in our behavior, especially when we gather for public worship. These are the plain things in the text so far. So now we've got that principle laid out on the table. Let's see what Paul sets on top. Next, let's look at the problem. Look at verses 4 through 6. This is the problem. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But, and here's what was happening in Corinth. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now remember the context. Don't forget the context of this. This four chapter section is looking at the public gathering of the church. It would be like Paul looking into what we're doing right here, right now, and having some critiques for us. That's exactly what he's doing in Corinth. And if you look at these two verses, something bad is happening in verse 5, and something bad is happening in verse 6, and that's the problem. So Can you see it? Look at verse 5 and 6, and you can see that in both there's something bad that's happening. That's the problem that he's addressing. Dishonor. The problem is dishonor. Verse five. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head, that is his physical head. Okay. This head. Paul is using the term head in different ways. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, that is, Christ, according to the principle in verse 3. This literally reads, this man who has his head covered, it literally reads, to have hanging off the head. That's literally what he says. This man has... To have hanging off the head. It could be long hair. It could be long hair, which was arguably seen in that culture as feminine. In many cultures, long hair is seen as feminine when worn by men. No comment. Or it could refer to. A pagan practice. And I think this is what it's referring to. It could refer to a pagan practice. Where men would go into these idol worship temples. And they would have togas that they would pull over their head. And then they would tug down on the hood. Out of respect for this idol that they were worshiping. So either men with long hair or that pagan practice. When Brought into church in that culture, dishonored Christ, is what Paul is saying. Likewise, verse 6 Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head, that is her physical head, uncovered, dishonors her head, that is her husband. According to the principle of verse three, since it is the same, not having her head covered is the same as if her head were shaven. So. It was shamefully rebellious for a wife to do this as shamefully rebellious as shaving her head would have been. So if we think about these three relationships that that Paul has described in verse three. Here is what they all have in common. We've already established they're not the same relationships. These heads don't operate in the same way in these three relationships. But here is what each of those three relationships have in common. The heads must be honored. In each of those relationships where there is a head and there is one in submission to that head, it is essential that the heads be honored. Those whom God has given authority must be honored by those under that authority. And in Corinth, the culturally accepted way a wife honored her husband was by wearing some sort of head covering. And so apparently some of the women, for reasons we do not know, were rejecting that symbol. They started to reject that symbol. They were taking off their head covering, at least when they were praying or prophesying in the worship service, and Paul sees that as a problem. That's what we're getting out of verse 5 and 6. And look down at verse 13 and you'll see that that problem, it is confirmed. Because in verse 13, Paul challenges his readers to think for themselves about the issue by saying, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? So these wives would probably stand up and they would pray. Or prophesy, which, as we will learn in future chapters, meant speaking forth the word of God, which was not a problem, apparently, in and of itself. But they did that. Without a head covering. And Paul is telling them that when they do that, without a head covering, they are dishonoring their husbands. And that's the problem. In first century Corinth, if you walked into a church, as best we can understand, if you walked into a church, it would have been fairly easy to distinguish the the men from the women and even the the married women from the unmarried women. There were practices native to their culture that expressed an acceptance and an embracing of the differences between men and women and the relationship between a husband and wife. And so when you walked in, it would have been fairly obvious what they did, even how they dressed, it would speak what they believed. I think David Strain, again, summarizes the heart of the problem really well. He writes, it, that is the no head covering, it signaled a rebellious spirit that was open to shameful Misunderstanding their dress, specifically in this context, some form of head covering expressed those gender differences according to the culture of the day, and they were rebelliously refusing to wear them. And then Leon Morris says, evidently, some emancipated Corinthian women had dispensed with the veil in public worship, and Paul argues that they should not do this. It is no part of. Of the life of the Christian. To needlessly flout. Accepted conventions. So that's the problem. There was a truth. That should have been established. In these women's hearts. And then expressed through their behavior. And it wasn't. The truth was that these wives. Were under the headship of their husbands. And in that culture. Their Happy and willing submission was expressed through head coverings. And so to remove them was to dishonor their husbands and thus to dishonor God. Silly Corinthian women. We don't have this problem anymore. We have moved past this. Have we? Obviously head coverings do not mean today what they meant in Corinth. If a, if a woman were to wear a head covering and maybe there is and I don't see it even now in this worship service, it would not it does not communicate in general what it would have communicated in first century Corinth but, what we believe comes out in what we do. So, what do we believe about the differences between men and women? Think about this from a biblical perspective and answer for yourself in your heart right now. What do you believe about the differences between men and women? Is it evident in our church? Who the men are and who the women are? Is it clear that we understand and celebrate the differences between men and women? Or are women trying to act and look like men and vice versa? Men trying to act and look like women. You understand we live in a culture where this is seen as antiquated, where this is seen as barbaric, where this is seen as strictly a cultural construct and just something that we've come up with and need to do away with. But we're just resting back on God's word. And saying this is what the word of God teaches. So what do you believe about the differences between men and women? What do you believe about the implication of those differences and What that means in the church and what that means in your family and maybe what that means even society. And how does that get worked out among us as a church? How does that get expressed? Do we believe that husbands are to be loving heads of their wives and that wives are to be happily in submission to their husbands? And if so, is that expressed in what we say or do? And do we consider how what we do speaks to the world around us? Right down, here's what was happening in Corinth, to the clothing we wear. Do we think about, even down to the clothing we wear, what it speaks to the world around us about what we believe? We need to think about our own cultural expressions because we have them. We need to think about our cultural expressions. And we need, in light of this text, to think about how we can get this truth out in everything that we do as Christians. Is the heart that Paul is getting to. Okay. Let's go quickly through the proofs. On to the next heading. The proofs that Paul gives These make up Paul's unfolding argument for the wearing of head coverings in Corinth. and There are four of them. I'm going to run through them real quick. The first one is in verses 7 through 9. For man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And he goes back to the order of creation. Man was created first, and then woman was created. And it is not arbitrary. It was not arbitrary on God's part. God made man first, and he gave him a job to do. And then he gave the man a wife to honor and help him. One without whom he could not do what God gave him to do. Is arguable. The next proof is in verse 10. It's at the end of verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. I know exactly what this means. Said no pastor ever. I have no idea what that means. The third is found in verses 13 through 15. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. See, it appears in that culture. It was different than ours. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. So in Corinth, they had, they had just like we have universally accepted, norms and customs long hair on a man appears to be disgraceful, where long hair on a woman was considered feminine and beautiful. And Paul says that woman's hair is a covering from God, which expresses her unique distinction from a man. And so these women, these wives, should celebrate and express that unique design in their case through head coverings. And then finally, the last proof in verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious to argue with Paul over this, he says, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God, which I think means that all the other churches, it was the same thing. It was the same recognized custom, at least at this time. And that should tell, that should tell these Corinthian wives something. So those are the proofs, which brings us lastly to the, the precept. That's not a word we use very often, but it begins with the letter P. So I went with it. What is the precept in all this? So it means, what is the instruction? Or what is the, the application? What is the command here? Well, if, if we're looking to keep the plain things, the main things, we're, we're going to have a hard time. I, I could not without any degree of confidence say that there is a very clear and specific application from this text there may be but I can't say it with any confidence even Paul writes at the start of verse 13 if you look even Paul says judge for yourselves he's saying think about this think about what I'm saying Meditate on what I'm saying. Think through this issue. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And while he had a specific application clearly for these wives in Corinth, for us, the precept is that we would judge for ourselves, that we would think through this. I mean, you see reasons why this text does not get preached very often but we believe that it is a part of the counsel of God and that we have to be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God and that every bit of Scripture is is written by and breathed out for God and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So it's good for us, even at first we don't understand how. So in this case, we could say that Paul wants us to think about this He wants us to consider what he's saying. He wants us to judge for ourselves, to evaluate our own practices as a culture based on the principle of verse 3 that we hold to be true. So in conclusion, the head of Christ is God. The head of every man and woman is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. That is the transcendent principle. There's no debate over that. And if you want something to lock on to, it's verse 3. When the church is gathered, when Christians are gathered, everything they do speaks. Speaks. This is a good word for us because we may take for granted the way we talk. We we can easily take for granted what we do. I don't know if we think enough about the implications of Scripture and what we believe. And Paul is at least making clear that we should be thinking that way. And considering this principle and, and how that's going to work out in everything we do, including... How we dress, what we may or may not put on top of our heads. Everything that we do says something about what we believe. That is plain here. Now, we should not get dogmatic about some of these things. We should be careful not to take our personal convictions and make them universal and start speaking where the word of God does not speak. But each one of us should be concerned to apply the word of God and think about how everything we do says something. We should live live carefully in that way as Christians. God's word again. It must be established in our hearts and then expressed in our behavior. What we believe about God shapes the way we live. Our actions speak louder than our words. In other words, how we live. How we live reveals our convictions. Do we believe? Think about what the Corinthians believed that Paul was emphasizing here. Do we believe that gender is designed and assigned by God for His glory and for our good? When it's becoming increasingly difficult to believe that without being shamed for believing that or without being looked down on or despised even. Or do we believe that? Do we believe that though God has created men and women equal, do we believe that there are profound and planned differences between men and women that must be accepted by Christians, that must not only be accepted but embraced by Christians, and not only accepted and embraced but even expressed? And if so, in what ways are you? In what ways are you intentionally or unintentionally expressing rebellion? Against the truth of God's word. Consider your actions. Your speech. Your clothing. Your customs. Your traditions. Your way of life. Wives. Does it honor your husband? Everyone. Does it honor Christ? One of the ways that you know we honor Christ here every week is through taking communion together, which we do in obedience to Jesus and in remembrance of and to proclaim what he accomplished for us on the cross. Paul wrote in this chapter that we're studying, in chapter 11, verse 23 and following, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we remember and proclaim the Lord's death today, if you are visiting with us, you are invited to take communion if you are a baptized believer if you have confessed your sin and you have turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, and if you are part of a local church, whether it is this or another one that faithfully preaches the gospel that you heard here today, if that is you today, then you are welcome to take communion with us. You'll see we're going to empty into the center aisle and have leaders up front to serve you. And then if you would all, as a reminder, take that bread and juice, return to your seed and wait. And then as a family, we'll take it together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word now, we, we rise up and we, we take and we eat and we take and we drink together as your family and at your table. And we are reminded of what this bread and this juice signify, and that is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, that the son of God took on flesh. To live and to die and to rise from the dead so that our sin, our death could be conquered and we could have life in you forever. So we thank you, God, and remember this. We hope and we pray that in our thoughts, actions, and words, that you would be glorified and praised in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.